This is Opening Spaces, the podcast about democracy, produced by Democracy International. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Opening Spaces, the podcast about democracy. I'm David Detman. And I'm Evan Smith. And today we are here with Glenn Cowan, uh, who is the CEO here at Democracy International and a uh, well-known survey research uh, expert, in addition to many other expertises he brings uh, to the conversation here today. So uh, welcome, Glenn. Thanks much. Good to be here. Uh, So, Glenn, let's start out by just saying, you know, what is uh, public opinion research in the international context? Why do we use it? How is it helpful to us as democracy promoters or international development, you know, professionals more generally? Well, not surprisingly, when we first uh, began to visit foreign climes to talk about democracy, to talk about how citizens would react to various public policy initiatives, the almost immediate question that was raised by those who were even in the slightest interested in what the people thought was, what do they think? And how would we know that? Because to institute public policies uh, without an understanding of what people really want is to take such a guess as to essentially become autocratic. So the, the questions of trying to do opinion research overseas uh, were really a, a first-order issue. So we're talking about public opinion research, um, and it's it's been in the news a lot. Uh, can you tell us about what we mean when we say public opinion research? What are the types and uh, methods of doing public opinion research? Well, in theory, public opinion research would, at its uh, obvious extension, be asking every citizen what they thought about everything, which clearly is impractical. Even in uh, New England town meetings where they took a, a poll of the audience, it was only the audience that they understood. They still didn't understand anything about the people who weren't there. When you're dealing with uh, populations in the millions, tens and hundreds of millions, there's no practical way to know without using the science of statistics or the near science of statistics. And that requires that you're using random selection as a way to understand what the whole think or what the whole feel. This requires some use of statistics. I'm reminded of a statistics professor once who suggested that mathematics was really a true form and statistics was alchemy by comparison and those who used it for example public opinion researchers uh, were uh, much like alchemists uncertain of their outcome and then when he got down to thinking about political pollsters he was so dismissive as to not even bother to criticize Uh, and events of events of late would suggest that uh, he was prescient uh, but that alchemy, we use that alchemy a lot, you know, both in, in around the world and also in U.S. politics and, you know, developed world contexts all over the place. What, I mean, do you, do you, do you think it is alchemy, but it's the best alchemy we have? Or, you know, why, why, do, we, why do we put so much value on uh, that kind of inherently, you know, uncertain process? Well, we don't really have much choice. We can't ask everyone, so we have to have a way to figure out to ask representatives of the whole uh, 
there is <laughs> there is an interesting science fiction piece about the society in which at the end of the day they pick the perfect person to represent the whole and that individual on each presidential election day is asked for their choice for president and is accepted by the entire society this individual is so of them all that they can make the choice uh, well, the uh, kind of surprise ending of that is that they then execute the person because <laughs> he was unable to bear the strain. <laughs> of Spoiler alert. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so where were we? We were trying to talk about how to ask a small subset of a population what they think and are there ways to do it. There are. There are very, very well-conceived methodologies, but they tend to be very expensive and time-consuming. And what we have unfortunately done over the years is try to figure out ways to undertake a process that will get us a result but not spend the time, energy, or money necessary to produce a legitimate answer. Now, if you're trying to figure out whether or not a particular vaccine is going to have an ameliorative impact on a disease, you don't try to shorten up on your sample size or allow the time for the vaccine to take effect to be shortened in order to expedite an answer. You're dealing in life and death issues and these have to be done accurately. Unfortunately, politics is never quite viewed the same way. And so good enough becomes the benchmark against which so much of this uh, is uh, judged. And one example of this is that in American politics, the, the most difficult question is who's going to vote. And even in the uh, presidential election and re-election re of uh, President Obama, the, the pollsters didn't get it right. The, they, they were off by uh, well beyond the margin of error in some of his victories in some states. And the principal reason for that, and I think one of the underlying reasons for the inaccurate polls in his most recent election is that we do not know who is going to vote and we cannot know who is going to vote because the people themselves, those answering the question the pollsters posing to them, don't know whether they're going to vote. To, you think about get-out-to-vote operations. Get-out-to-vote operations assume that unless those operations take place, some number of people will not show up at the polls. They are done because there's an assumption that they will drive people to the polls. When a pollster asks someone four days before the election, what is their likelihood to vote, that person cannot know what the effect will be on their likelihood to vote of a get-out-to-vote phone call or someone coming to their house to visit. Or news that comes out in the interim. Or, or news that comes out. But that, you know, that's sort of always been a problem, that people might change their mind due to current events or to a, con or a conversation with their aunt. But the get out to vote, which is claimed to drive people to the polls, has an unknown effect on the individual voter. So the pollster is stuck having to use an analog of likelihood to vote that turns out just to be terribly inaccurate. And when you're dealing in the small margins of victory we're talking about, I mean, fewer than 80,000 votes between four Midwestern states made, a, made the difference in this past presidential election. That is right on the edge of an insignificant percentage of the population. And yet, pollsters were called on to be able to judge the outcome at that level of detail. Political polling was just never intended to that precision. 
So we have these kind of levels of uncertainty when we do public opinion research, but we have uh, it, it, kind of two tools in the toolbox, one that we call qualitative and one we call quantitative. Can you speak just a little bit about kind of the difference between the two? Because, you know, we hear about focus groups, we hear about surveys. Can you talk about uh, how we use those two tools to try to mitigate the uncertainty that you're talking about? The, the qualitative research, which is typically done through focus groups, was originally designed to test messages, not to design them. Mm -hmm. You didn't ask focus groups what they thought about things, what their views were of various public policies. You rather instead asked them what did they think of this explanation of that public policy? What did they think of this graphic that tried to sell a particular product? What did they think of a jingle that was supposed to uh, remind you of a product? And that can be done with small samples of populations because you're not, you're just trying to get sort of a, a left or right, a north or south. You're not looking for 22 degrees. Uh, and so focus groups provide a, a real good feedback on a message that you're testing. Fortunately, uh, a lot of political uh, pollsters and a lot of work in international development, for that matter, have fallen back on focus groups as a method for actually determining public opinion. And it's a tool that was not intended to that purpose and doesn't really fulfill that goal in any reasonable way. Simply uh, increasing the number of focus groups you do does not increase the likelihood that your statistics will be better. Are you sure about that? I'm certain of it. Okay, uh, you heard it here. The statistics simply don't permit that a lot of uh, statistically inaccurate data can be added up to a, a, a finite accurate number. Uh, and then what about uh, surveys? Yeah, surveys, if performed accurately, can tell you what people think and what they might do when you ask them. But it won't tell you what they're going to do necessarily 10 minutes later, an hour later, or certainly not days later. I remember in uh, Bangladesh three or four years ago, we'd been doing a series of surveys. And in the two or three leading up to this particular effort, the issues of economy were, without question, the thing that was of greatest interest to all of our uh, Bangladeshi uh, respondents. And then we do a survey where it turns out that education is the most important thing to them, only a few months later. Huge shift in what's the most important issue, to the point where we weren't certain that we had done our sampling correctly or that we had written the surveys well or we'd reached those that we intended. It turned out, when we went back and looked at it, that we'd done everything exactly as we should have. But, as would have it, we had done the survey over a period of several days just at the point when national exams were being held for all levels of education in the country. And so those exams, which are so crucial to the success of everyone's children, were top of mind for our entire uh, respondent base. And you ask, what's the most important thing? Well, today, the most important thing was education. Tomorrow, it may be something else. So survey research is always temporal. It's, it's about when you ask and what the circumstances are at that point. You ask people what the most important thing is after a cataclysm, and they're going to say whatever led up to that event. You ask them a year later, and uh, concerns about those types of events may have dropped off, but don't mean they won't come flaming back uh, as soon as you get the you know, repeat 
of what concerned people prior. So what, um, what do we do? I mean, we're talking about survey research, this alchemy slash science, as though we are, we're still trusting the outcome of this. If we do a large enough, if we have a large enough sample, if we have, if we kind of make the selection correctly, we're going to get good information. Why should we believe that? I mean, why should we believe that, you know, 2,000 people in Bangladesh can tell us something that is reflective of the entire population? Well, for most public affairs work, the survey work we do is good enough. Mm-hmm. You know, if you are trying to figure out whether or not a, a new health plan is satisfactory and is helpful to people, you're not really trying to measure it down to a margin of error of three or four percentage points. What you're trying to do is discover whether generally mm-hmm. this is satisfactory to people. Mm-hmm. So you have a sample size that generates a margin of error of five or six percentage points, and that's, you know, good enough. This is, you know, going back to our other example of a vaccine, if you're testing vaccines, five or six percentage points isn't good enough because that means you may be killing five out of 100 people that you test the vaccine on, and that's just obviously not acceptable. So the work we do in public affairs does not require the level of accuracy that would be recovered, that was required in other scientific endeavors. Unfortunately, when it comes down to elections, what we look for is exactly that degree of accuracy. And we look for it from a process that wasn't designed to produce that kind of answer. Uh, So you've been doing this I mean, survey research uh, all around the world for um, for a while now. What are I mean, and on to that specific point, people are using survey research, especially you know maybe exit polling or political polling of various types, to try to do that. Um, what are what are some kind of scare stories that you've you've seen out there? Well, the the obvious, most frightening stories come from a survey or some form of uh, opinion research that asks people who they were going to vote for and a determination that a certain candidate, candidate A, should win the election, and in the event, candidate B wins. And the conclusion is reached that the only way that would have happened is if they cheated, rather than presuming that there was probably something either inaccurate about the survey research going in or was never designed to be able to measure what people were going to do in the future in any case. Using, using survey data to determine who the winner of an election ought to be and calling the process into question as a result will lead to absolute chaos. And in some countries has led to you know, thousands if not tens of thousands of people uh, being hurt, injured, and killed uh, due to an a really irresponsible use of opinion research as a methodology. And then on the flip side of that, you, you mentioned Bangladesh as some research we're doing. Um, you know, what, what are some really good ways to use it to kind of, you know, help us as democracy promoters out there? Well, one example in Bangladesh, there, there are 300 uh, districts in their parliamentary elections. And over the years, the principal Uh, political parties have learned which of those districts are safe for them, that they can, you know, easily assume victory in maybe 100 of the 300. Uh, 
And at the same time, they're interested in undertaking policies that will be widely liked by a broader population, for example, uh, having women candidates run for office. They hesitate on occasion to have women run because they're afraid that they may not be as successful politically because of the unfortunate biases against women. But we try to make the point that in those 100 districts or whatever the number is where they're safe, they could be safe running a woman candidate. And so getting them to understand that and believe it by running opinion research in a district like that that shows, sure, I'm voting for your candidate no matter who it is. It doesn't matter. That can lead to a really significant change in the way the parties look at who they nominate for these offices. It can lead to a, a much more vibrant legislature as a result. Well, uh, let's, so let's talk about the kind of the elephant in the room when it comes to public opinion research. Uh, I think a lot of people were really surprised by the results of the recent U.S. election. Um, folks who follow public opinion research, research have been hearing numbers of a 99% chance that Hillary Clinton would win the election, 90% chance based on these kind of projections. What did they do wrong? Well, you know, there was there's something in the U.S. called the Bradley effect that flows out of elections in California where an African-American candidate was running for statewide office. And what they concluded after the fact was that the political polling showed Bradley winning rather readily, and he lost. And what they discovered afterwards, and going back to survey respondents, was that people were simply not willing to acknowledge that they would not vote for an African-American candidate. And so the African-American vote, as a consequence, was over-sampled and, uh, it, you know, generated a bad number. I think these last elections have much of that in it. I think there are a lot of Trump voters who, for whatever reason, did not want to acknowledge that they were going to vote for Donald Trump and either told survey respondents, surveyors, that they were undecided, said they weren't going to vote, or actually said they were going to vote uh, for Hillary Clinton when they never had any intention of doing so. Uh, and we have never figured out a reasonable way to deal with that type of error. You, you really cannot get people to acknowledge something that they feel they might be ashamed of uh, or don't want you to know for fear of, fear of retribution. So I think as much as anything, the, the error was a, a basic difficulty with all survey research we're asking people something they may not want to acknowledge. As an example, you know, have you ever shoplifted in a store? You never get reasonable responses to that. Uh, have you ever uh, been the victim of a sexual assault? Always way under count uh, anything of that nature. And much is true of politics in some, in some uh, instances, and this was certainly one of them. And that goes back, I think, you know, and you mentioned this earlier, to the, you know, the, the model of the likely voters, you know, the, the voters that are likely to turn out to the polls and, you know, how pollsters, you know, basically weight their data, rate their responses based on that underlying model. And if it's wrong, then your, your poll is going to be wrong. Has that always been how uh, pollsters, at least in the U.S. Set setting, have done it? Or has, has those likely voter models, have they gotten much more sophisticated and th thus much more dangerous if they're wrong over the years? They've certainly gotten more dangerous uh, 
as the supposed sophistication has uh, theoretically enabled pollsters to do the modeling, but almost invariably where the survey uh, respondents themselves don't reflect the actual population and they attempt to model uh, what they know into what they don't know, they don't get it right. Because again, it's, it's, a, it's a turnout question. I remember there was a Georgia Senate race some years ago where the incumbent U.S. Senator was considered a, a shoo-in to be reelected, and uh, you know, against all probabilities, was defeated. And that's because the public opinion researchers modeled their uh, results based on the past election and didn't anticipate huge reductions in turnout among some constituencies. And so we saw a version of that happening in 2016 where young voters and uh, minorities and just didn't turn out in the levels that um, all, many pollsters expected based on what happened in the 08 and, and 12 elections. And you know that's particularly true when you when you think about you know think about the maps that you look at on CNN or whatever and you start getting you go below the national level to a state and what was the sample size in the state and then you look at the state and say well what's really important is this eastern city and in the eastern city it's actually just the south ward and eventually you get down to a population of 150 200,000 from which you were expecting a certain performance but the number of respondents in the survey that you did in that district may have been 15 people and a normal error on a sample size of 15 is essentially infinite so uh, it's no wonder that you get it wrong when the actual outcome relies on small pockets of voters that you haven't sampled sufficiently. So what's the lesson? So what do, what do we learn, I mean, not just from kind of the media consumption of public opinion research, but as far as uh, practitioners, either domestically or internationally. So what do, what do we learn from what this, uh, the election kind of shook the confidence of people in public opinion research. So what, what do we learn? Do we learn we should just talk about it differently? Should we do it differently? Should we not make projections? Because I think the real problem wasn't necessarily this horse race question. It was from the horse race question and from the individual state polls, projections were made and likelihoods were kind of they said 90% or 99% likelihood, and then when, uh, when, when Trump won, people were shocked and thought it was either unfair or, or know, wrong. Or yeah. wrong. Um, so what do, we, what, do we, what do we learn from this? I mean, clearly public opinion research is an important tool. Uh, we often say it's kind of connective tissue between citizens and their government, uh, a way for the government to understand and better rep represent the interests of their citizens. Uh, it would be, it seems like it would be a bad thing if people's confidence are, is shaken in this, but something went wrong. What do we do differently? Well, you know, it's not just in the United States. The Brexit vote, uh, most mm, of the right. polling was incorrect there. Uh, Marine Le Pen's victory in France was, uh, the polling wasn't accurate on that. It wasn't accurate in France on the most recent uh, race for uh party predominance there. Or Colombia. Yeah. Or Colombia, the, the plebiscite there. I think anytime you're asking people whether or not they are upset about something, that they're angry about something, that they are troubled by something, rather than that they are in favor of something, I think you wind up risking an inability 
to measure strong emotions. Most of the people, for example, who were uh, going to vote for Hillary Clinton were, you know, they may have been somewhat enthusiastic, but it was hard to think that they were adamant in that view, that they were enthusiastic about that view, that, that they were, you know, really uh, so taken by her candidacy that it was the most important thing in their lives. Whereas the people who were angry, the people who felt put upon by their circumstance, by their government, by uh, a local office holder, whatever it is, they were really angry. And that anger is difficult to measure in uh, opinion research uh, tools. And Brexit was the same thing. That was, a, that was a vote of anger. That wasn't really a vote about leaving the European Union. That was a that was a vote about how dare you, and uh, those kinds of elections I think are always going to be difficult to measure. You you can't do it through standard methods. You know maybe maybe if the Clinton people had spent a little bit of time driving around Western Pennsylvania and West Virginia right. uh, and s looked at all those Trump signs out yeah. there and thought about how difficult it is to get someone to put a sign in their yard and find hundreds and hundreds of them everywhere you drove in rural America that, that should have given them a notion. So taking, you know, taking all of that together, are, is public opinion research, is it a good thing in a democratic society you know, today? Or is it, should we be doing less of it? Should we be doing more of it? What's, you know, how, how does it affect kind of us at a higher level of our our you know democratic system of government. I think it's I think it's a tool that can be used to determine what people think right now, and to determine what they think of public policies generally, because again we're not we're not really all that concerned about two or three or four percent margin of error. I think you could do public opinion research in most countries with a sample size of two hundred, you know, so it produces a twelve point margin of error. When you ask people are they more worried about economics or violence, you don't care if you got 12% of error. If you got 70% telling you they're more worried about violence, if the real number is 60, so what? What you're really looking for is sort of directional. You're not looking for, again, you know, a specific compass bearing, you know, what quadrant you're in. And I think for those purposes, it can inform political parties uh, as to whether or not their general tenor is the right one for the people. All right, great. Well, thanks so much, Glenn. Uh, we've been uh, talking with Glenn Cowan, CEO of Democracy International. We appreciate you coming on. My pleasure. The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of Democracy International.